Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab a hot pie, don't forget your team kit, and join us on our journey through Unseen Academicals and the Complete Discography. The thing about football, though, the really important thing, is that it's not about the football. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I remember the day that he burst through the door of the chapel and announced that to me and then reeled off a list of everything that was important about football. The, 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 the woolly hats, the woolly, the scarves, the woolly scarves that, that went on for several meters, the, you know, longer, a lot longer than, than, uh, than Doctor Who's scarf. Uh, going, oh gosh. Tom Baker, what number was yeah. he? Anyway, but yes, that type of scarf, the pies. And then we started getting into the serious stuff, the chanting and the, uh, the, just the, that feeling of belonging and being part of something. That's what it was all about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we should but we can get into podcast. that when we start. We haven't started <laughs> yet. It's, it's, like the, it's like the end of the book, but in reverse. Uh. Yes, it is. <laughs> So, uh, we are here on this lovely, disturbingly warm here in Philadelphia, at least, February day, talking about the 37th book in the Discworld series, Unseen Academicals. Uh, And because you were going to want to meet our guest as soon as possible, let's do our silly titles quickly and and get into the meat of the discussion. Justin, you want to lead, lead us off? My name is Justin. And listen, if you could bring out the salt shakers again, I swear I'm this close to understanding how offsides works. I'm Anna, and honestly, after reading this book, I just really, really, really want a pie. I'm Rob, missing, presumed. And I am Aaron, adjunct lecturer in recursive study of recursive studies of recursive studies of recursive studies. That voice may be familiar to some of you and may not be familiar to some of you, and it should be familiar. Uh, Rob, would you like to actually introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Rob Wilkins, and I spent... I don't know how many years working alongside Terry Pratchett and what a great privilege and an honor that was. So what was your first Discworld book? It was Color of Magic. When it came out or? I must have bought it very, very early on because being unashamedly a a, a geek and a nerd and any other thing that you want to label me with, it only makes me better by you throwing those labels at me because I am unashamedly one of those. I went back to my parents' house after I started reading Terry seriously. I mean, he must have written, by the time I really got into reading him, he must have written maybe four or five books by that point, you know, should I say four or five Discworld books by that point. I went back to my parents' house and realised that I had a first edition Colour of Magic on my shelf, bought from Gerald's of Norwich, my hometown, uh, on the east coast of the UK. How do I know that? Because I was such a saddo that I would take the till receipt and I would actually put it inside the jacket because later on I would know when I bought it, not just how much I paid for it, but how much, uh, sorry, when I bought it, then I would work out going back how long it had taken me to read it and when it was relevant to me and all of that. And there it was. And on my shelf here, right, just just to my left now, my first edition copy of Colour of Magic still sits with its till receipt in it. So I must have bought that very early on. Um, 
did I buy it for the cover art? Yeah, I bought a lot of things for the cover art. If so, maybe, maybe I did. But I did start reading very early on. But I'm not one of those who's going to say, do you know what? I was given a copy of The Carpet People uh, for Christmas in 1970, whatnot, and, and I read everything as it all came out. I'm not one of those, and, I, and it would be ridiculous of me to say so. But I've always been an avid reader of Terry's. And I started, yeah, as, as early as I can remember. I can't remember a time when there wasn't a Pratchett on the go. There we go. Long answer to a short question. So were you working for Terry in the handoff between artists at that point? I was at Alton Towers, the uh, the the, um, the theme park. Is it a theme park? Doesn't there's no real theme around it. It's a it's a fun park in the north of England um, with Paul Kidby and his family. And Colin Smythe phoned me and said, "Josh Kirby has died. Paul Kidby is now the." Artist of Choice, hmm. a title that Paul has, has carried with him ever since. Uh, and I, yes, so I, I was in the, how do we describe it? I was in the inner outer circles of, of Pratchettum. Is that the right way around? If we, drew, if we draw that, I've probably got that the wrong way around. But you know what I mean? I, I, I had started working for Colin Smythe, so I, I was bouncing around Discworld. But I remember... The, the book that was being written at that time. It was, it was a Discworld book called Forest of the Mind. There you go. Bet you, bet you haven't read that one, he says. <laughs> but you have. It was Nightwatch. And I tell you why. Because when the baton was handed to Paul Kidby, Paul Kidby looked at the work in progress, read the work in progress, and uh, as he did, came over to see Terry. And uh, Terry uh, chatted with him about what, he'd, what he had been working on. And Paul went away and uh, had a good look at the Rembrandt painting of Nightwatch. Thought, I think that's the painting. That's that's the one. I'm not going to give it its full title. Please look it up. I will make a mistake, uh, unashamedly uh, make lots of mistakes in, in recalling that. But the most important two words in that title are Nightwatch. Mm-hmm. And overnight, instantly, Forest of the Mind became Nightwatch. And that's down to Paul Kidby. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, that's great. How much of the the later um, characters were sort of an interplay between uh, the art and and Terry's thinking? Wow, really good question. Uh, uh, they they the more that Terry's visual acuity went, the more he hung on to the art. Uh, and a good example would be Paul turning up with um, not even a rough underpainting. Uh, Paul Kibbe doesn't do rough underpaintings. He does, they're, they're, they are, everything he does is, is a work of art. So he turns up with what looks like a finished painting of uh, what we now know as the cover of, of Going Postal. And that formed the end of the book for Terry, that that scene. It oh, showed wow. t- visually Terry where Moist was going. He's now on the pile of, uh, standing on a pile of letters uh, holding a letter aloft a la Luke Skywalker and, and and that's it Terry knew then pretty much Moist's journey from the beginning of the book to the end I was eternally disappointed that I couldn't get over to to the UK to to see the, the exhibition when I went on uh, is there any chance whatsoever that it's going to come to the United States the, the Paul's exhibition I don't know I, I honestly don't know but we, as in the Pratchett estate, we would dearly love another exhibition. And I will probably 
find out in a minute that my power gets turned off as I start talking about things I shouldn't talk about. But uh, <laughs> that isn't one of them because we, we did a little exhibition down here in Salisbury, Terry's hometown, and uh, the His World exhibition. And we recreated Terry's desk. We recreated the screens that Terry worked on. Uh, and it was it was so accurate that even though the bookshelves that are now the bookshelves that sit behind me at my desk uh, in the chapel in Terry's writing room, they, they were obviously just printed on, 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 a, on a flat pieces of vinyl and then put onto the wall. But they were so convincing that when you walked in the room, you felt as if some sort of parallax was going on because you, you could you could feel real depth to them. And people were walking into that room in the museum, in Salisbury Museum, and bursting into tears and asking me how I felt to be there. And you, you know what? It was it was really emotional for me, even though it's my office and I go into it every day. Seeing it recreated like that and now people coming in and appreciating Terry's working space, it, it was phenomenal. So in answer to your question, that whole big waffle is, I would love to take that around the world. I'd love to bring that to America. I'd love that to show... I would love to show that to everybody that I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think of it because uh, a few years ago, uh, I met several of my my California friends in New York at the Morgan Library uh, for the Tolkien exhibition that came. Oh, there. it's so and, that was so beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I I would put uh, Terry's work on par with Tolkien any day. Oh well, that's incredibly kind. And Terry would say, "Well, what more can a modest man say?" But while quietly being very very pleased, and what would he say? <laughs> well. He can't say it now, but at the time he'd say yes. Um, but I'm less dead than Tolkien, or Tolkien <laughs> is more dead than me. So, which always used to amuse me. The one thing he had over the, the the great gentleman. But that's yes, what a great thing to say about it. Thank you. One more question about uh, about that that workspace. Uh, I've seen some photos of um, six monitors at Terry's desk. Indeed, is that has that all was that always the case? No, it wasn't. When I first arrived, Terry had one monitor, and that and that was it. Uh, it and it was a flat screen, um, and it was a, an Yama monitor that sat there on its own. And very soon after I joined Terry, I wired up a second screen. And the moment I extended the Windows desktop across <laughs> two screens, it, it was a mind-blowing <laughs> moment because Terry thought all I was doing was giving him a repeater screen. So when I was at the keyboard, uh -huh. he could see what was going on in front of him. But oh no, Terry, we have now extended windows across two screens. <laughs> but the, the big question that Terry used to get asked was, why six screens, Terry? And he would lean forward to the journalist and say, because I haven't got room for eight. <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah, no, my 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 mother is a right is as an author as well, and like I I took a trip up to a relative's place where my mom has a remote office that she'll sometimes use, and there are there are three screens in the setup along with a recording setup, and, and it's like there's two there's two horizontal like normal, and then there's one vertical, and I'm just like I understand why you do this, but still. <laughs> That looks great, though. I mean, it, it looks like the future. Whatever the, the, the configuration, it is the future. Mm -hmm. It was certainly the future we were promised. One last thing before we start talking about Unseen Academicals. Um, tell us a little bit about how you wrote this book, A Life with Footnotes. <gasps> wow. Okay. Well, yes. It came out last year, so it came out seven years after... Terry passed away. 
And it took me, therefore, you can work out the maths. It probably took, what, five and a half years after Terry's passing for me to actually sit down in front of a blank screen and make the decision that I'm going to write it. It was incredibly tough. It, I'm not going to deny it. There's no easy way to get those stories out of your head and onto the page. It was it was very, very hard. And I must admit as well that I didn't think that I was ever going to be able to do it. I thought maybe it's a story, a story that can be left for grandchildren in a hundred years' time. They can they can write it all down from from tales that I've told them. I didn't think I'd be able to do it. And yet sitting there with the introduction finished, thinking, well actually I've I think I've just found my voice. Um, I, I pressed on, and Terry left me twenty four thousand words from what from what would have been his autobiography, and I knew pretty much how to get those into the work. And talking to my editor, he said, "Yeah, what we'll do is that we'll we'll paste those onto the page, and then you in footnotes because I already knew." because I, I had it in my notes from Terry, what the book was going to be called. You in footnotes will annotate those. Great. That's easy. That's a big cigar moment. That's that's the first 20, 24,000 words. I mean, that's a that's a quarter of a book, that is. I, I'm well on my way. And then I started, and this weird thing happened. The voice in those 24,000 words, even though they were typed by me at the keyboard with a very much alive Terry Pratchett in front of me, they didn't have the voice that I knew to be Terry's. They weren't the authorial voice of the books. They weren't Terry's voice that he conversationally spent with me talking to me. It wasn't that voice. Uh, it, it wasn't a voice to journalists. It, 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 there were so many voices that I knew were Terry's. And yet these words, they, they were none of those. And I, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand it. And, and that was my biggest point of block in the writing of the book. But again, my editor came back and said, well, that's okay. I think we can solve it like this. And it's so simple. And you'll wonder why the solution actually hit me so hard. But he just said, Terry Pratchett is going to be the biggest contributor to his own biography. So in other words, you can quote him liberally. You can you can expand on those quotes. You can discuss those quotes with yourself. Once I realized that was how I was going to do it, knowing that the first half of the book was going to be all about those 24,000 words, that made my life so much easier. And because I've been taught by the great Terry Pratchett, it wasn't a difficult process in terms of getting it onto the page, getting it out of my head was the hard bit. Getting it onto the page, that wasn't the difficult bit because there were several tent pegs that I knew that I had to hit, several markers. And one of the biggest ones was going to be the halfway point in the book. And in fact, secretly, I can tell you this now, I wanted there to be two volumes to the biography. I wanted there to be volume one, which was all about Terry up to this point. And it was Terry sitting under a tree in his home in Roborough in Somerset. Lynn, his wife, coming out with some lemon drizzle cake. It was always lemon drizzle cake. It makes the world a much better place and a cup of tea because we're English. And saying, Terry, are you okay? Is everything okay? And Terry looks to Lynn and says, yes, I think it is. If I carry on like this, I might never need to do another day's work for the rest of my life because he's just signed for the first time and only time in his career because he wouldn't do it after that. He signed a six book deal and it meant that 
that's it. He has now given up the day job. He's now a professional writer. That's the point. And when I finished the book, and I finished at about 167,000 words, I was delighted. When I did a word count to that halfway point, it was actually 80,000 words. <laughs> so if you take off the intro and the epilogue, I, I hit my marker almost spot on. But it was it was incredibly tough. And I think we all know uh, that what happens with this story, the boat sinks at the end. We know that Terry is going to die. And we know the closer we get to the end, we know what we know what's coming. There's no mystery. And I admit to you that the last three chapters were were really tough. They were they were really difficult because I'm now reliving things in enough detail to make you the reader get something out of them, which is probably more detail than if we were having a chat Mm -hmm. in a pub over a drink. I would gloss over things and and maybe there'd be things I wouldn't tell you because they were too upsetting. Mm -hmm. But with the book, I've got to give you everything. I've got to give you everything. And I found that very hard. And in fact, we were just finishing the actual filming, the the, the actual principal photography of Good Omen Season 2. And I was at my office in the production office at I'm in Bathgate. We're filming Good Omens season two. We're almost at the end of principal photography. And I can't get through them. I can't get through them. David Tennant and Michael Sheen are just over there every day. Just They are just over there. And that's the most exciting thing in the world for me. It's brilliant. And that's making me very happy. And the thing on my screen is making me very sad. So I had to close the machine down and I stopped writing those three chapters. And for a few days, it ate me up because I had no release for them. The words were building up and I couldn't get them out of my head. And then after we finished principal photography, I sat down, opened the machine up and they came out like a tidal wave. And I got to the end of chapter 20 and I felt that I had, well, I'd been in the eye of a hurricane. I, I really felt that the, the storm had blown through me and there was nothing else. But now I've got to write the epilogue and talk about what comes after Terry. So if anybody ever wonders with my book why the epilogue is proportionally a much smaller chapter, there's a couple of reasons. One of them is it's my epilogue and the book isn't about me. It's about Terry. So you don't want to hear about me. You want to hear about him. Um, but also it was just that feeling of I'm, I'm, the book is finished. We've got to the end of Terry's story. I finished and then the book is printed and published. And now people tell me actually Terry's story will never end because the words that we all love, Mm -hmm. they will be read forever. And that, that fills my heart with, with with joy as well. So maybe I should have put a bit more effort into that epilogue. (laughs) Maybe I should have done, but you know, the reasons why now there you go. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely end cap on, on it. I will hold on. I will. Uh, unblur my background for a second so you can see my Terry shelf. None. So, oh, it's blocked by my microphone, but uh, up there, from Got there it. to there, is all Terry books, and then also over there. Fantastic. <laughs> and then That's there's actually there's some literary criticism of, of Terry's works right there. <laughs> so... <laughs> I am um, very impressed. I'm very impressed. And, it, and I'm pleased to see all those shelves are completely stuffed full because Terry said, never, ever trust a man with, who's got enough shelf space. So there we, go. <laughs> we, we are perpetually out of shelf space in this house. It's why all of my reading for the show has been either ebook or audiobook because I, I like I, I did for Christmas, not 
previous year, but the year before, got several of the the deluxe hardcovers for some of the books that we that we've gone through already that were like the ones that I absolutely had loved. But it's like I it's like no, they're gonna if I get any more, they're gonna be on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> the other secret thing for this podcast is that it's forcing Anna and me to finally read Shepherd's Crown. <gasps> Wait, okay. neither of us have. Yeah, neither of us have managed to, you know, bring ourselves to read it yet because that's, you know, that's the moment where it really will, like, I'll be over, you know, but then we can reread again, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the point. I mean, would you like to ask, would you like to ask me when we are recording, uh, I know we're still recording, you know what I mean, for the show, um, how I feel about that? Because, you know, I I can, my, my stock answer is always read it read it it was it was written to be read and and then i get very because i do know how you feel i i know that's why i closed the screen down on on -hmm. the final three chapters of a life with footnotes because it was it was too tough to get through that and people you know will tell me various reasons why they can't read shepherd's crown you know there's always one more discworld book while while it's still unread um I am less nervous about you reading Shepherd's Crown than I would have been about Raising Steam. Huh. I think that the Raising Steam, it's a really difficult book for me to talk about because mm-hmm. it was the book that I realised that we were losing Terry through mm-hmm. the writing of. Um, and I suppose in a minute, when when we're back on, to, uh, back on track again, I, w- I will say that uh, Unseen Academicals was the, the last book that we had Terry at his peak powers. So there you go. My, my, my answer to you about shepherd's crown is read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. And we're going to, but we should probably talk about unseen academicals. (laughs) (laughs) 40 minutes into this recording. (laughs) So I'm going to just quickly summarize it. uh, And I'm going to leave out some of the best bits because you listeners should read the book. This is a story about football. This is not a story about football. It can be both. The action starts at Unseen University, where Ponder Simmons is now, for his sins, the master of the traditions, among 17 or so other roles he holds, making him a controlling interest on the faculty council. An unseen power shows him that a certain rather large bequest, responsible for a noticeable portion of the faculty food budget, has a rather large string, or possibly bootlace, attached to it. The university is expected to fund and field a football side. Rid Cully, still reeling from the betrayal of his former dean at their new upstart rival university in Pseudopolis, is left with few choices. With time, and the cheese board, running out, they turn to... Downstairs in the sub-basement of Unseen University, we meet a strange and surprisingly erudite mystery, Mr. Nutt. Everything about him seems wrong on some sort of primal level, but he's kind, calm, efficient, and desperate to please. We also meet his friend and coworker Trevor Likely, a young layabout with a bendit like Beckham's like natural affinity for keepy uppy. Trev is also the scion of street royalty, Dave Likely, a so-called face of the great street game of Ankh-Morpork football. And because this is Ankh-Morpork, the street version of football is equal parts rugby, Aussie rules football, and justifiable homicide. Because of his father's death in the game, Trev has promised his mother to never play and is instead a dribbler. Uh, he makes the candles more academical, I guess. However, the draw of the game cannot be denied, so he is a frequent participant in the shove, the experience of trying to see around the massed crowd of spectators while eating a hot pie and singing songs of support. Speaking of pies, the other major players in this story are Glenda Sugarbean and Juliet Stollop, employees of the Unseen University Night Kitchen. 
In addition to keeping the evening and early morning tables stocked with food, Glenda has a number of side hustles, including selling troll makeup made by entrepreneurial dwarves door to door and making sure that Juliet gets between work and home safely. In fine star-crossed tradition, Juliet and Trev, signs of rival street gangs, sorry, I mean football supporters, are drawn to each other, as are Glenda and Mr. Nutt. Fentanari, never one to let a chance to direct chaos into a useful tool, directs the university to revive the ancient rules of football, but for a modern, civilized Ankh-Morpork. Park. He is also aware of Mr. Nutt, as it appears that he is an experiment between Vetinari and Lady Margolotta, and whether Vetinari's cosmopolitan ambitions extend even to the most fearsome of creatures, the Orc. After a misadventure and near-death experience at a Dimmer Dolly's match, infects Nut with the football bug. He quickly finds himself in charge of the nascent Unseen University squad as they prepare for a match with an all-star team of local players. But meanwhile, thanks to Glenda, Juliet is discovered by a dwarf fashion designer duo and turned into Ankh-Morpork's first supermodel. Nut has a crisis of faith in himself as he and the rest of Ankh-Morpork discover his true origin, and he flees the city only to be chased down and convinced of his worth, and his worth to Glenda in particular. Plus, as Bloodlow Knobs, no relation, notes, he has not pulled any heads off lately. At the match, there is some genial confusion about the rules. Wait, no, sorry, there are poisonings and personal fouls leading to Nut subbing in, and then Trev Likely, whose father was Dave Likely, joins the game to score the sudden death goal and win the match for the Unseen Academicals. Nut confronted and scared by the chance of Orc Orc, finally realizes what is needed of him to become a true Ankh-Morporkian, and declares in his post-game speech, Come on, if you think you're hard enough. Afterwards, Nut meets with Leader Margolotta and Vetinari, who acknowledge his worth, and ask him to go bring the remaining Orcs into the light of civilization. He responds that he certainly will, but wonders in turn, who will be sent to the humans to do the same. Justin, what are your thoughts? Um, so, I, I very much enjoyed this one. Um, there is... I like I out of the three of us, I would consider myself by far the most sports person here. Um, so it was like immediately I knew it was like, OK, I'm 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 hooked on this one immediately. Um, but really, honestly, it's like the like there there's I like I really enjoy like sports history and stuff. But like and the the soccer stuff was fun. But like the I really found the the four, I guess, to lack, lack of a better word, street kids to be like actually the highlight of the book for me. And mm-hmm. um, I think something that is always an interesting choice to see like which characters are allowed interiority in a book and the choices here, especially with like Glenda are like made the book for me. Yeah. Glenda is a fantastic POV character. It's interesting to me rereading this because I, I remember reading it and loving it the first time, but reading it, in the context, uh, and especially in the dialogue that we've been having, reading the the full progression book by book, mm-hmm. it makes so much more sense to me now, mm-hmm. because it you know it I I I hear Terry's sort of point of view character in different ways in different books. Mm-hmm. In this one, to me, very clearly, it's Vetinari, um, because it feels to me like he's saying he's testing his own theory of everyone deserves a place. Everyone's redeemable. Everyone, you know, deserves to be worth, to be worthy and to, to have love in their lives. And, you know, the, we've seen veterinary introduce way back in the beginning, you know, dwarves and trolls and uh, vampires and werewolves and ghouls and all of these other things. 
And he, he's sort of saying to himself, well, what about the orc? Because the, the thing that sort of ties us all around to the beginning for me is this whole discussion of the dark war, which mm-hmm. I don't think we ever hear about in any of the previous books, but it feels like a hook back to the light, to color of magic and light. Fantastic. In that it's referencing a, like a really classic sort of sword and sandal fantasy mm-hmm. trope. Yeah. Uh, but then saying, well, what about that? And there's yeah. big ties to sorcery too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting to see references to the events of sorcery. Yeah. A book know. that was so far back that I'm like, oh, right, that happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because this is one that I bounced off of pretty severely the the last time I read it, which was devouring it on release day. Um, like it, it was fine, but it didn't really hook me. Whether it's that I'm older, you know, have a better personal grasp on like race and class issues, or have watched Ted Lasso and I'm no longer utterly at sea in the world of foot the ball. Um, Whatever combination of those, I really thoroughly enjoyed it this time um, and can't quite believe that I bounced off of it last time. (laughs) And one thing one thing I feel like even with so many balls in the air or on the pitch, as it were, it's a very tight novel. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have we don't have some of the like kind of loose threads that making money had. It's it's really just very, very solidly constructed and like. Just a joy to read. And the pacing, I feel like, is so much more consistent than... So just thinking back to the first sort of third of the of the books, something that we commented on over and over is that Terry would spend, like, the first two-thirds of the book putting all of the dominoes into place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of us would struggle sort of to focus during the, the first, you know, the first 200 pages, and then you would just consume the last 150 pages in one go. Yeah. It's like everything would happen all at once now that like yeah. everything's in line. So what, what broadly speaking does unseen academicals say for, for you at least Rob? For me, it says one massive thing and that is it was the last book that we had Terry at his full power. And that, for me, is a is a very difficult thing to uh, to, to go over with you to, mm-hmm. because we now know that those magic powers did run out. Um, but at the point of writing this book, he was still absolutely firing on all cylinders. He was coming in every day. We're, we're just brimming over with uh, with ideas. I spent a lot of the time of the build-up working through this book, thinking that we would actually, we would drop it at some point in favour uh, for I Shall Wear Midnight because that was all already brewing in the background because those of you who know Terry well will have heard the story so many times that there wasn't always just one book on the go. There were, there were, <laughs> there were multiple books. And Tiffany was tugging at us that she needed a story to be told, but also moist you know, we just had making money and there seemed to be so much more we could do with, with moist. And we'd fleshed out a couple of, of moist ideas, um, raising taxes, running water. They were all there just in the background. But Terry seemed to persist with this. And when you consider that in the office, in the chapel, our writing room, 
you would find it difficult to find two people with lesser knowledge of association football than me and Terry. It was, it was a very, very odd choice. Um, my family, I grew up in a family, a very, very sporty family, and my, my brothers on my birth apparently were overjoyed. My, my middle brother, Dale, um, uh, exclaimed on my birth that he was delighted because they finally had their wicketkeeper, which is a position, um, a, 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 it's it's quite a dangerous position. You, you sit behind the wicket in, in, in cricket and you are the one having a ball bowl at you through the through the batsman um, and, and you have to pick up the mess behind. Um, I, thankfully, <laughs> my interest in football is very, very narrow. And um, I, apart from breaking my thumb catching a cricket ball at school, I have no recollect, other recollection of playing it. So the point there is um, growing up with a family who would stop a car to watch two kids kicking a tin can down the road. You, you can start seeing, look into our brains and you can see, ah, oh, right, OK, tin cans. Right, we've got it, we've got it, mm-hmm. we've got it. But what we loved was the mythology around it. Uh, one of the greatest football players on... Well, uh, certainly for, for us as um, as Englishmen uh, was uh, George Best, um, absolutely from Belfast, absolutely incredible player who uh, lived in, grew up in ab- abject pro- poverty, and uh, he would kick a ball at a target on the wall with his right foot, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and when he was good enough with with his right foot he would kick it with his left foot and he would kick it and kick it and kick it and he just worked at it and worked at it and he was if you're allowed to be a footballer and a genius which i think you are that's a, that's a, that's a, i'm allowed to to uh, to put that uh, title upon him when terry read about things like that it was important that they that they had their story told too so it, it was a story that maybe for me, was going to be a subplot of a bigger story. When it became the story, it was a great surprise. I couldn't be more surprised than than anybody listening to this. And it came about through several different ways. And one of them was Terry sending me off one day with a pickaxe, sending me down into the pit. And the pit was the, the folder on our main working writing machine where we stored all of the stuff that hadn't made its way into the work in progress because we belong to the recyclable school of literature. So nothing went to waste. Nothing went to waste. If there's a good scene and it's got a knobby and colon in it and it doesn't work, don't throw it away. Pop it in the pit. Pull it out later on because you never know who's going to get those starring roles. It might not yeah. be knobby and colon, but it'll be somebody else. And that's the way we work. So he sends me off into the pit one day. And what do I come out with? I come out with the the, the megapod scene mm-hmm. uh, uh, in its entirety. <laughs> that at oh some gosh. point that we cannot remember when that was written. Oh. Um, it, it, I mean, it must have come out of Terry's head at some point, but he has no recollection. I have no recollection of it going down. And it did. And so I read it to him and I was so excited because, uh, you know, I, I love, well, I love all of Discworld, but I love Unseen University. And there we are uh, with these ridiculous traditions and there could be nothing more ridiculous than the Megapode scene. And we just took it almost word for word and dumped it at the beginning of the work in progress, which I think was just called football. We always had a, had a name that related nothing to what the eventual title would be. Uh, and it, that was it. it uh, the, the beginning of football uh, was the Megapode scene. So, yes. All of that waffle is saying to you, 
that I am embarrassed that there was no big plan. Okay, there was no, <laughs> there were no post-it notes on the wall. There was nothing. It was just. It's probably time we do the football one now. Then I like that. I mean, that that yeah. you know that works. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a nice vibe. And yeah. that yeah. really, that really sort of puts in context a lot of what I think we've seen reading all of these books because you see things pop up that you know were a phrase or a sentence in a book twenty books ago that he then just turns it into an entire book. Mm-hmm. Because it, it clearly yes. has been like turning in his head somewhere, you know, and yes. he, and shaking and it shakes out in in an entirely new way. Or or alternatively, he's like, I could do that better, and then he does. And there's only one word for that, and it's a word that I was never allowed to use in the office, but I'm going to use it here tonight, and that is genius. That genius, <laughs> yeah. What ah, oh. and witnessing it up close was no was no more magical than it was for you guys. You know, you experience it. I promise it's it's exactly the same. When you see something on the page, yes, sitting next to him when those ideas were flowing out of his head, well, it was an absolute privilege. But they translate 100% wholly onto the page and you, the reader, get out of them as much as I did being there in the room. And it, it yeah, it, it is nothing less than genius. It's It's something that I've always, like, that through various interests of mine, it's like I, I have a philosophy of that. Knowing how the magic is made doesn't subtract from the magic at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just means that you have a better understanding of the magic and that can enlighten it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Justin, I am jabbing my screen <laughs> saying yes, 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 <laughs> over and over as you're saying. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Obviously, the the, the 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 converse of that is that you don't want to see how the sausage is made. And I and I <laughs> and I and I agree with that. But D- David Copperfield made me disappear on stage, live on stage in Las Vegas, and I will never tell I will never tell anyone how oh. how he did it mm-hmm. because to you the audience, he made me disappear. <laughs> And in fact, okay, okay, for the podcast, I will tell you. Do you know how he did it? Do you know how he did it? I'll leave it. <laughs> it was magic. That's how it was. It was magic. That's how he made me disappear. And Amazing. it was brilliant. And yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Being on the inside of a, of, of a magical spell. Thank you very much. That's yeah. what it was. So yes, um, thank you for that, Justin. That I need to hear that all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it's a great quote. Thank you. And to me, to me, it do- it doesn't just feel like genius to kind of bring these things back and expand on them. There's a level of humility of it to be like, you know, I did this thing well before, or you know, badly or whatever, and now I can do it better. Like to to mm-hmm. you know, not just be like, oh yeah, I did that. Like it was great. And we're done. And interest and curiosity yeah, yeah. and intellectual hunger. I mean, yes. yeah, all of those things. Yeah, it's it's really. You know, it's really been a joy of this reread to, and and with the kind of way that we've been discussing the books and looking at them critically and seeing seeing all those patterns. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some of the 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 main themes that we picked out from from the book? Um, I think that one of the things that really like stands out to me is is about multiculturalism and immigrant immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mean, there there's the whole thing of dwarves and looking through them like uh, Madame. Oh gosh, I, I cannot remember her name. Charm, I believe. Charm. Yeah, and uh, my the the ac- the absolute king of uh, gosh, I, this is why I need to write down names. Pepe. 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 Uh, <laughs> oh, Pepe. I uh, loved him. And it's like, and how people who like you know, especially 
you know, moving to a new area, you know, create these new communities within their own, like, you know, minority communities. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, it, for, from at least my perspective, it, I, mean, they are very, like, to me, they are very queer coded. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I, I have in my notes, Pepe, my non-binary king. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, and, and how that is. And to an extent, nut as well um Mm -hmm. with how at least through sort of that anglo cultural lens that we have of of like you know first or second generation immigrants of like oh i need to like my parents are pushing me to be a doctor or like you know to have an important job and that like that pairing that with nuts obsession with worth Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, is, gosh, to me as somebody who, like, you know, who can see that a lot in various people, like, not even necessarily, like, immigrant uh, children that I've, like, worked with in the past. But, like, you know, the idea of, oh, I have to have value as a person of something. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, like, those those all coming together is just, I mean, that's fascinating to me. And I think the book does a really good job of exploring that and all the ways that it can be like both like benefit to society but also like harmful to individuals yeah Yeah. the the through line of worth was something that really pinged for me um especially also with all the expectations on anybody who's a a token something because you know nut is the only orc he has to as one person represent all orcs and that's such a such a heavy burden for any one person to shoulder. Um, mm. And you know, I feel like Nuts struggles with having to having that role. We're we're really um, really meaningful to me as I was reading it. Um, I also like the through lines with the kind of fiction versus reality as Glenda examines like what her expectations are of romance from reading you know, a lot of romance books versus the romance that's sitting there right in front of her that's with, you know, somebody who's not, you know, not a, you know, tall, dark and handsome on a, you know, midnight black stallion or whatever that Uh like, you know, he might not be what she has in like her idealized vision of you know, the perfect man or whatever, but it's like, this is the romance that's in front of her and this is the one that's actually working. And I, I really like yeah. those. Um, yeah. Also, the the through line of, like, sports as a, as a proxy for more violent competition between, you know, areas or nations or whatever that, mm-hmm. you know, instead of having war, we can instead compete via sport. Looking at you, Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the, I think the thing, you know, looking at my notes just now, I think that really two the things that I wrote down are two sides of the same coin. Honestly, it's the the examination of the the desire to belong, mm-hmm. both in both the positive and negative aspects of that. You know, because the the ne- the positive we see in the shove and the that warm feeling that they all get being a part of a greater organism, mm-hmm. but then also the the crab bucket. Uh, metaphor that that uh, he uses repeatedly in this book, mm-hmm. where you know 
no, you can't go somewhere else. You, you are part of us. Yeah. That's the. Mm -hmm. Speaking of metaphors that, you know, I'm sure that Terry helped bring into popular consciousness there, the crab bucket. Um, Because that's, you know, that's something I see everywhere along with, you know, Vimes's boots theory. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's such, it's such a good analogy. Okay. So the, the whole feeling of worth actually came about not through not through orcs, but it actually came out about through goblins. And they were the goblins in the Elder Scrolls game of Oblivion. Oh. And Terry looked – he was playing a lot of Oblivion at the time. And, yeah, a hell of a lot of Oblivion. I love this. I love to, this. To, to the point where I was having frantic phone calls with Rihanna saying, we're not going to get this book done. And she would say, you know, where are you today? And I'd say, he's up on the mezzanine. He's playing Oblivion. I just want to get this book. I want to get this book finished. But he was learning a lot through about, about life. Uh, for the underdog through the goblins of oblivion. Now go on and read Raising Steam, and you will see when, when, when you get to that, Justin. You, you will see goblins. There they are, and everything that I'm saying now will, will click into place, and you, you'll get it. But he started really picking up on the fact that the goblins of oblivion that they were so easy to attack, they were so easy to destroy, and yet with a few tweaks behind the scenes, because we used to mod Oblivion up to its ears, they they, they could be our allies, they could be they could be useful to us. And here's the point: by being useful to us, they have they are gaining self worth. They are being useful to themselves. We are giving them we are giving them the tools to which they can become better goblins. And 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 I I like that. So fast forward, rewind whatever, to, to, yes, definitely rewind, to Unseen Academicals, and you will see where Terry's thinking was. If you play Oblivion and see see how the goblins play through vanilla of Oblivion, you will see where Terry's mind was and what he was thinking. Fascinating. Fascinating. Speaking of things that just enhance the magic. <laughs> I was actually just today, I came across an article talking about, about Terry's obsession with Oblivion, so... There's there's a lot about Oblivion in my book, In a Life uh, with Footnotes, where we actually started uh, conversing with, with a lady who uh, called Emma, who modded a character called Vildja, and Terry wrote a lot of her lines for for the game. So if you if you mod Oblivion and you have downloaded the uh, Vildja companion, you are when when she's talking to you. There's a lot of lines in there that are Terry's, and and it was, it was all bubble gum for the brain. Okay, it, yeah. it didn't progress the mm-hmm. novel any further forward, but it it gave Terry the grease to to grease and oil the machine that was producing the Discworld books. And mm-hmm. I I, mm-hmm. I now look back with great fondness, and and certainly now laugh at my own panic about how worried I used to be that the books were the, 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 he's, he's too busy playing he's just not working but it was all it was all worthwhile in the end so yes yeah the, the whole self-worth thing came from oblivion it's wild that's awesome yeah. <laughs> I also want to touch briefly on the the jewels subplot uh which you know both from from watching Ted lasso and then also just encountering other media in, in similar sort of veins feels like the, the whole wag thing 
wives and girlfriends of footballers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so much nicer to her. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, for like the first third of this book, I was like, oh, is something really bad going to happen to Jules? And like, and no, it's it's like great. It's it's positive. And I'm just like, oh, this I, I was really prepared for something bad to happen. And you know, pleasant that's one of those pleasant surprises. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love it as a coda to the dwarven cultural revolution meta plot, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Because it, you know, just like with Glenda taking the the um, the cosmetics around to trolls that are made by dwarves, mm-hmm. it shows. I think it shows where Vetinari wanted these things to go. He wanted people to. He wanted this system to work independent of a Vetinari. He wanted it to people to just treat others like people because that was really, you know, we shall rule you wholesale, I guess, but oh. also, um, Oh yeah. The, the, the full, is this the first, is the first time we've seen like the, like, or at least the majority of the Encore pork anthem. I think it I think is. So. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the detail about the, most of the entire second, um, verse being no, 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 no. I'm nodding at my screen. There's nothing truer that Terry wrote down than the fact that, yes, the second verse to any national anthem is no, no, no. Except for people like Ridcully who know it every single every single letter of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> at 120 decibels, mm-hmm. that's it. Just a, a side thought. Who, because the, the everybody said Brian Blessed when, when they think Ridcully, but there's another... Uh, that that recent um, uh, His Dark Materials uh, HBO series, there's a um, there's a man in it who also looks like he could be uh, easily be Red Kelly. You know who else I feel like would make a great Red Kelly? Uh, Matt Berry. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, no, I think he would be a better Dean. Uh, yes. I, I think he has he has the boisterousness to be a Red Kelly. Oh, oh James yeah. Cosmo. That's who I'm thinking of. Okay, well, I I know he I know him from something. Well, you probably know him from um, that other HBO show. Oh, okay. Uh, who did he play? Who did he play in that? Um, great, great audio, folks. Yeah, this is great audio. Me <laughs> looking up stuff on. Oh, he, oh, okay, 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 okay. Oh, he played he played uh, one of the more he played Jor Mormont. So, oh yeah, that's yeah. Frick yeah, that works. Yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry, that's a total side <laughs> sidetrack. Um, <laughs> So for for more like themes and tropes, I also really enjoyed all of the like my fair lady Pygmalion sorts of things tossed mm. in, um, and also Justin, I don't, I don't know like what your read on this is, and I don't know whether this was intentional or not, but this feels like a very queer book to me. I think I think in the way that everything that is not about the wizards is about outgroups in this book. Yeah, yeah, um, or at least what we would like consider outgroups of like the poor the the non-human the i uh, and i guess in brit and brit literature this would be the downstairs people mm-hmm. um and it's like so the, so because of that like even if they're like you know especially with madame shard and pepe there is that oh yeah like, text yeah like there there is that text there but like it's all about people who do not who are not part of cultural norms so and yeah in that way yeah yeah well and even one wizard Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, we do get we oh gosh, I can't remember his Bingo Macarona. Yeah. Who I 
is part of a joke that I would say is probably very funny to read, but is the worst translation to audiobook possible. (laughs) (laughs) That like I'm like, I get the joke, but it takes two minutes of the audiobook because they keep repeating everything. And I'm like, okay, how long are we gonna do this? Let me tell you something about that. When we first typed in all of his honours the first time, there we go, right, we'll take a breath, we've got them in. Terry felt it was cheating if I then just copied and pasted them again and then again. He felt that you, the reader, might somehow find out via some way, by if you're holding the book up to a light and having a look at the way it was printed, that you could see that I cheated and I didn't type them all in. But let me tell you here and now, I did copy and paste them. There was no way. <laughs> By the way, it's just come to me. James Cosmo, he was Galder Weatherwax in the Sky adaptation of Colour of Magic. Oh. Uh, I couldn't remember who he played. There we go. It's just come to me. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh wow. So, so that's why I been. That's why I was thinking he should be a wizard. There we go. Take, it, t- take up casting. You've just worked it out. <laughs> that's how we do it. So, yes, he's, he's already been a wizard. I think we've already devoted probably like several hours of recorded time to casting various disc world rules. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to me because also there's this one theme or one trope that kind of gets subverted, I think, is there's a there's a Romeo and Juliet style build up mm-hmm. yeah. of Trev and yeah. Juliet. Yeah. Um, you know, scions of rival houses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then it's lampshaded and subverted at the end when when Glenda and Nut go canoodle in the back of Starcrossed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And while we're talking about tropes, I mean, I've got a little bit further down in the dock, but the, but the dock the dock is a guideline. <laughs> I, there, there's a quote. There's a quote that I can't. I don't know the origin of, but that Tolkien is like Mount Fuji in Japanese art. Whenever is that Tolkien is always present. Like and you know and and even if it's not referenced, you you can see Mount Fuji in the background of art because it's always present. And, it's, and with orcs here, the I mean the tree like the the backstory of them is somewhat similar to like how Tolkien depicts them is that yeah. they're created people who were driven to be weapons. And um, if you want to hear more about Tolkien stuff, you can go listen to. Um, our friend Jude Vase's podcast, Atherbeth, uh, where they talk a lot about works and how it was one of Tolkien's like biggest like conundrums that he never solved in his lifetime. Of he he couldn't reconcile how he could do like he couldn't reconcile it with his, his own philosophy. But I like the I mean, here especially when we get to the the not necromance post-mortem communication which is still my favorite. it's my favorite joke such a good um, bit oh. uh, but like we see that like yeah no these were like it wasn't like it's just they were they were made evil it was they were made they were made as tools that were made to that were that had to be driven under whips yeah to do that bidding and i it's it's such a i want to say fun but it's a it's a great like extrapolation on that sort of trope of like these created monsters mm-hmm. um and it's like these monsters were just people that were made that were made that were made for a very specific purpose and forced to do these things and history made them into actual it made them into monsters yep. yeah i mean there there's a 
a lot of historical um <laughs> there's there is a lot of historical stuff you can look on about you know how certain groups were you know portrayed as monsters and villainous when really they were just on the losing side of a war yeah mm-hmm. i'm going to just one of the things that we have done throughout this podcast is pull out these those quotes that sing in the back of your head for the rest of time after you've read Terry's books, uh, buttons, uh, because we pull them, I guess. Um, the, the one that has always, always, always been in the back of my head uh, ever since I first read Unseen Academicals was... There was a time when my mind was full of darkness. Then Brother Oates helped me to the light and I was born. Oh, religion stuff. But here I am. You asked why I am strong? When I lived in the dark of the forge, I used to lift weights. The tongs are first, and then the little hammer, and then the biggest hammer, and then one day I could lift the anvil. That was a good day. It was a little freedom. Why was it so important to lift the anvil? I was changed the anvil. Yeah. That has lived in my head ever since. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so, so powerful. And, and similarly, the salmon speech. Yeah. Vetinari's line of, if there's any kind of supreme being, I told myself, it is up to all of us to become his moral superior. Yeah. Which is a hell of a line. <laughs> uh, doubly so, considering how many gods we know actually exist. Right, in right. In this world. Although I guess they're not necessarily the supreme being, they're just gods. Yeah. Yeah. Terry did feel the same way about politicians as well. <laughs> uh, I mean, my the one that sticks with me is just the Ankh-Morpork Trespassers Society was originally the Explorer Society until Lord <laughs> Venonari forcibly insisted that most pla- most of the places discovered by the society's memories already had people in them. <laughs> that one's I was, amazing. I, God, uh, I, it's a feels like a callback to your finger, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I I have a couple of buttons to pull. There were some comments on the press in this one that I thought were <laughs> fantastic. Um, so the first being the Times has, had done the Times has done one of their thoughtful pieces. I suppose it isn't too bad. It quoted the Arch Chancellor, who says that Mister Nutt is a hardworking member of university staff, and there have been no incidences of anyone's leg being torn off. They put it like that," said Glenda, wide-eyed. "Oh, you know the sort of thing if you read the papers a lot," said Ponder. "I seriously think that they, I seriously think that they think it's their job to calm people down by first of all explaining why they should be overexcited and very worried. Oh yes, I know that. Uh, I know they do that," said Glenda. "How would people get worried if they were if they weren't told how to be?" <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then the other one, but it was a funny thing. Every day something happened that was important enough to be on the first page, page of the newspaper. She'd never thought she'd never bought it and seen a little sign that said, not much happened yesterday. Sorry about that. <laughs> I love, I loved both of those. And I feel yes. like those are, those are two of the quotes that have really just aged perfectly. Um, same with no civil police force could hold out against an irate and resolute population. The trick is to not let them realize that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's always interesting seeing Vimes outside of a Vimes book. Yeah. yeah. And now we learned that the watcher referred to, to as old Sam now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that was one of my favorite little bits of this book is that like, you know, old old Sam. Yeah. It's, you know that the police over here are called the old Bill. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're, there we are. We've got that. So uh, we, we um, yeah, 
Terry's feeling about anybody in a position of authority, it, 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 you can read Terry's feelings about that through Sam Vimes immediately. There's no, there's no line. It's just blurred. <laughs> what Terry, what Terry felt about authority, even oh, though Sam yeah. Vimes, at, by the end of the books, um, there, there is no, there is well, apart from Vetinari, there's no higher, higher authority than him. This is so fun, by the way, that you you are reading bits back to me that that mean so much to me and boy, is it good to realise what they mean to other people. It, yeah. it's, it's just, it's so glorious to hear this. So thank you. I'm having a great time. Yeah. I'm so glad. Are there any particular quotes from the book that, that have stuck in your head ever since writing it, I guess? The Anvil for me, it, it that, that really did uh, over, yeah, uh, not overshadow. I, I mean, it in the nicest possible way. Um, but the, uh, the, the the phrase "any boys who's not brought his kit will play in his pants." <laughs> there you go. We've all been there. We've all been there. So for me, that one really did stick with me. Um, growing up and going through the schooling that I did, yeah, that that really did resonate. <laughs> Um, and, and both me and Terry, we most definitely had played sports in our pants. And they're British pants, not American. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> An important distinction here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just there, there we go, listener. So, yeah, very, very, very important. Any other word that we want to pull? Not for buttons, although uh, the, there's lots of great bits. Yeah. Hmm. Although I guess the, the truth... Um, the many pairs of shoes that the truth has. Yeah. I also love. <laughs> oh, That's yes. fun. Yeah. I mean, but my, my favorite, my favorite like recurring bit of this book is the return of Dr. Hicks, who is, yeah. I mean, I, I t- don't think there's a, there's a character that I've just like so immediately fallen in love with of just, Hey, skull rig. I, by rule, by job description, I have to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> just because there have occasionally been uh, um, things that we as three Americans didn't get. Is there some sort of joke behind that? That's a, a very British thing, but behind the name, Dr. Hicks. Yes, there is. Yes. There's a gentleman called Mr. John Hicks who ran the, I can't remember which convention, what year it was. Uh, but he ran one of the UK conventions, uh, Discworld conventions. Uh, he was the chair, and he loves his amateur dramatics. Um, <laughs> we all know the thing called Tuckerization, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. We all know, we all know about that. Uh, John Hicks, uh, he he Tuckerized his way into the novel, and uh, that uh, John Hicks spelled H I C K S. Can there be no greater gift to Terry? than that spelling enabling him to to rename John H I X and and that's it so yes that 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 is the the true meaning behind Hicks uh, was John Hicks amazing who ran a Discworld convention who has now been mortalized forever as Doctor Hicks probably my favorite piece of Tuckerization probably amazing. my favorite piece another piece of Tuckerization that isn't a Tuckerization I would like to point out here and now I will repeat it for the rest of my days is Willikins Willikins is not me it was just one of those great pieces of literal serendipity Will Willikins became more me the more I got to know Terry and work with him but the original Willikins 
came into the books long before I came into Terry's life. Oh, see, so, I assumed that it, I assumed that the tackerization for you was uh, was Rob anybody. He is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the fighting and the drinking I do. There you go. <laughs> here, here I was uh, about to ask if you if you bought your own paper clips. <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, there's no stealing from the stationery can. <laughs> yeah. So other other parts of the book that we we loved. Um, one thing that I loved was Nut's speech about Trev's dad. Honestly, yeah. You know the complexity of of memory and the bits that we remember and the bits that we don't. Yeah. The line that made me just crack up and start laughing uproariously was the backfiring horse. Um, just as one of those little things that's tossed in there and it's just yep. hilarious. Oh, I, I mean, also we get the return of, of Rincewind and the luggage for, yes. I mean, like they, you know, just the slightest of moments, but each one of them is like, Oh yeah, this like, I'm getting good, happy memories. Yeah. Yeah. But then also, also, you know, the, I think the the best little rinse wind thing in there was when when the arch chancellor and the dean, the former dean, are going at it, and in the background, uh, once things calm down, Rincewind is hurriedly putting his sock back on. Yes, <laughs> because that's how he dealt with the last wizard battle. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and I do like Rincewind trying to get out of a game by. Um, well, in fact, I'll give you the exact quote. Uh, I would like permission to fetch a note from my mother, sir. <laughs> Ridcully sighed. Rincewind, you once informed me to my everlasting puzzlement that you never knew your mother because she ran away before you were born. <laughs> Distinctly remember writing it down in my diary. Would you like another try? Uh, permission to go and find my mother. Yes. From oh, Rincewind. Yes, it's a good one. It's a good one. I, I dearly love all the wizards. Uh, I... I Especially love them, you know, as we've said, I think more than a few times when they're in the strong B plot as opposed to the A plot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. If we were talking, if we weren't talking just about unseen academicals tonight, I would point out uh, the last continent to be a, a booking question there where the last continent here's a, here's a controversial thing I think would have made a better um, B plot than than the uh the, the overarching story hmm. um i i really do they yeah. are controversial but uh, that's how i feel about that book i don't think you'd get any arguments from from the three of us on that one actually <laughs> <laughs> it was a book that had to be written uh, terry was getting badgered at the time to write another rinsewind book so he <laughs> wrote it and said there you go right now i can move on <laughs> <laughs> All of the discussions about pies also I loved. Mm -hmm. um, here's a, a peek into the round world. There is a man who I am very good friends with who lives in Philadelphia and ha is from East London and has a real deal British pie shop, South Philadelphia, which is why I knew what a stargazy pie was. Because the shop itself right. is named Stargazy. Also, sorry, Aaron, oh. just excuse me while I take off my headphones and then go and get on Amtrak. Um, and I'll see you in a couple of hours. <laughs> it, it's worth it's worth a visit, honestly. What, what is what, for sure. What is a stargazy pie? I'm... So it's a Cornish pie uh, involving mullet, I think. Um, this sort of medium sized, smallish, medium sized fish, and it's baked with all of the heads poking out 
so that they're looking at the stars. Okay. <laughs> Cornwall is a country. It's a, it's a, it is a place. It is a place. Okay. Uh, it will definitely be pleased that it's now been promoted to a country. It will be very, very pleased about that. They do want their own independence, and I'm not one to argue about that. But yes, it sounds positively foul. Um, but it does look very, very, very... Distinctive? Very, very distinctive. Yes, yeah. And very, very Discworld. I'm tempted yes. to see if he'll, he could make the, the Plowman uh, pie, though. I bet he could. Oh, Terry, actually, Terry had a lot of people, a lot of experts in a lot of different fields. And he did make inquiries about the wrapping of the cheese around the pickled onion, the the heat of the oven would still, that the cheese would deflect the heat or absorb the heat or do something with the heat uh, that would be very interesting because it would stop the the heat uh, permeating through the onion and therefore you would still have the, the very important crunch. And so all of that, all of that research in there, some poor person, who, uh, who was one of Terry's, what he would call his Greek chorus, um, <laughs> would have had to have gone off and done their research and and and, and found out what was required to, uh, to 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 deliver that pie. Amazing, as per the book. That's practical research one hundred and one, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I also really enjoyed drunk veterinary. <laughs> <laughs> Who is functionally identical to regular veterinary, except slightly more loquacious, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Has a little fun. And his obsession with with uh, the sugar bean clan is also kind of oh, yeah. amusing because, yes. you know, in prior books, he's really sort of ascetic, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's, he doesn't seem to go in for much in the way of, of personal luxury, but... Something about uh, the sugar bean clans cooking, you know, seems to seems to open up something in him. It feels it feels sort of like um, you're all going to hate me for saying this, but ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. When when the uh, the critic tastes tastes the the ratatouille and it transports him back in time. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of my my visual for veterinary with the <laughs> with the plowman's pie in front of him. Yeah. yeah, and in her and you know, Mark Lotta's comment about oh you you're tasting it you know un, you're, te- you're eating it untasted. Uh, what if she poisoned it? And he he responds that you know that Glenda wouldn't do that to a pie not because she didn't not because she's particularly caring about veterinary but because she'd never do that to a pie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Everything you need to know about Glenda wraps up in that one <laughs> sentence. There we go. How we should oh we should talk about the the dwarves. Yeah. Yeah, that, that whole scene, for some reason in my head, it happened in many earlier books. And I, I was totally wrong. I, I must have misremembered it from something else. But the micromail and the fashion design and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like something that could have happened uh, maybe around Feet of Clay, but didn't. Mm-hmm. I f- so this, this is... This is historian Justin popping in here. Uh, but I feel like it couldn't have hmm. because mm-hmm. you have to like, it, it is that the reason that the micro male thing happens is because now there's a community of dwarves here who are willing to try new things and that there is a market 
for it, yeah. to, for it to come out of, of that there is now dwarf luxury items for this new, for this new sub, like, you know, this new group of people who are interested in that fashion. Yeah. And that, you know, it, it's in the way that like, you know, you'll see like there, there's like the, this cultural, this cultural outgrowth of like female identifying dwarves uh, and, these, and women dwarves who now, like now that the group is established and in the city, they want to, it's, you know, want stuff to culturally identify with. Yeah. And yep. the other thing that's come up and like, that I think really gets like, is a, it's not a, like a plot, but it's a running through line of the book is how commercialized everything, like how commercialized everything has become in Ankh-Morpork. Park. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I don't think there, and it doesn't really feel like there's a value judgment being made there, but it's like, it's showing how much more growth and how much easier it is to get stuff specifically for you in there. It's, a, it's the rise of small businesses too. Yeah. It mm-hmm. feels like. Yeah. There's like a very, it's like a very like sort of like twenties or thirties, especially with like the rise of like catalogs mm-hmm. and like niche magazines. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, also the uh, that that level of culture happens when you're not just sending all of your earnings back to the old country, yeah. but keeping capital there. Yeah, yeah. Which again is something that veterinary wants, and because now we have whole generations of dwarves who aren't, you know, who aren't sending money back to their parents in the old country because their parents, you know, their parents are in Ackmore Park. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the people who are, you know, I don't want to say genuinely Ankh-More Pork citizens, but, um, you know, who grew up there. Mm-hmm. So, with the understanding that this book is only 14 <laughs> years old, um, <laughs> what felt particularly relevant to you today from this book? For me, it was those those lines that I pulled about the press, um, okay. the 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 one with um you know how are we supposed to know what to be worried about if the pre- if the news doesn't tell us to be worried um that i read that essentially in the same day as reading the onions like lambasting of new york times and other coverage of trans issues and it was like oh these are saying like the same thing no. you know that the the way that the media covers things influences how people think about them. And if the media tells you that this thing is scary, then that thing is scary. <laughs> like balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you know, amateur um, meteorologists and stuff like that are having a real hard time now. Yeah. Um, one thing that really struck me as I was reading this book while Philadelphia was gearing up to um the the recent uh american football championship was in fact all of the descriptions of the shove because philadelphia in particular seems to have a very recently developed but very powerful communal experiencing of these large sporting events mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know you see all of these these photos of of people massing out on on broad street and the, all of the jokes about greasing the poles uh i don't know if that's gotten over to the uk but um 
<clears throat> the uh, public works folks here in advance of major major sporting events in Philadelphia um, use big paintbrushes and cover the poles in machine grease <laughs> to try to prevent people from climbing them during celebrations or during uh, observances of, of major losses. Ironically enough, in the Italian market every year in Philadelphia, there is a competition where people climb greased poles to try and get prizes. <laughs> Anyway, I wish Terry had known this. I wish Terry had known this. <laughs> I think like the first real big incidents of it unfortunately occurred just a few years ago. Like like or at least the like the big mm-hmm. ones that got like major news coverage, but yeah, it was yeah. Uh, I think probably about 2018 yeah. was when when the the Philadelphia Eagles won for the first time in a long time. Yeah. It, rem- um, it reminded me of uh living in Montreal when there were hockey playoffs because you know, mm-hmm. especially there was a year where the Habs were up against uh Boston and it was like well you know better better make sure you're away from downtown because if the Habs win there's going to be a riot and if they lose there's going to be a riot <laughs> either way especially after multiple years of us quarantining away from each yeah. other and sitting by ourselves that that being a part of a living, breathing, organic thing that feels greater than like mm-hmm. some yeah. of its parts. I mean, for example, really, I, for example, I wanted to, I mean, the reason that my voice is gone um, is that <laughs> I over, over the pandemic as like part of a, you know, things defined to get into. Um, I started, I started to be professional wrestling and like and and so last night and so last night my voice doesn't usually sound like this. I am completely shot because last night I went to a show with two thousand other people, and um, I we I was there with my sister and a friend of ours who does not watch this, and there was a huge match and literally from the moment like the, this match starts we are chanting one of these these names just Eddie Eddie Eddie. And the crowd was getting so raucous that my friend turns to me and he's like, is there going to be a riot? Like, I'm gen- like, are they, are, is SJPD going to have to come down here? And I'm like, it might, <laughs> but it's like, and, but it's like the, the idea of, I mean, I would say that most Americans do not have the, the, there isn't as, as formalized maybe of a culture around sporting, sporting mm-hmm. fandom in the Americas as there is. And uh, like England and Europe, but I mean, it's there is something about like you know chanting with you know a couple thousand other people, and and you know you know joining together for like a like nobody's leading this thing; it's just being done spontaneously. You mm-hmm. know, shouting like you know you know couple hundred people all all shouting, "You fucked up." You fucked up. And, you know, it's, <laughs> and, you know, it's, you know, and like you, and meet, and like enjoying things with strangers around you and like, and for, for three, you know, for two or three hours being in a place and being with other human beings um, and enjoying sharing, sharing emotions with each other, which, you know, it's, yeah, you know, we, and and jointly hating the opposition, mm-hmm. and in terms of um, association football, um, you might hate the opposition, but both sides hate the referee <sighs> <Yes>. more. 
And that's very important. <laughs> so you can both join in your hatred of one thing. Oh, gosh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, who's the bastard in the black? <laughs> but on Discworld, you don't want to know who the bastard is in the black because he's eight foot tall and he's very skillful. So <laughs> or possibly Dr. Hicks. Or possibly Dr. Hicks, indeed. Or possibly Betnari. There's, n- mm. there's no bigger bastard. Erin, <laughs> uh. I'll note that Montreal does have its own um, does have its own traditions when when you know rioting about sport. Um, they involve flipping and setting fire to police cars. Mm. I mean, that's a great a tradition. tradition. I would, I honestly, <laughs> um, unfortunately, San Jose. Um, San Jose traditions are not that great. We we do not have we do not have a very storied sporting history. Um, <laughs> though we we do have like there's a couple places downtown that like where it is common to gather where we can watch the San Jose Sharks get eliminated from the playoffs every year. Right, as is tradition. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that I, I want to talk about just because I don't know how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Pepe, I guess, converted to dwarf. Uh, because he's a Ankh Morpork lad, I think. I've I've had this sort of, and I mean, we have a we have a an example uh, of this before, you know, because Carrot was raised a dwarf, uh, and is a dwarf, uh, even if he's a, a six foot tall human being, he's still a dwarf. Mm-hmm. Dwarf in Discworld has, and I've talked about this till my co-host yell at me, um, feels to me almost like an indigenous religion because. You know, there's that vibe of, well, I mean, I guess you could convert, but why would you? Because you're not. Yeah. You know, the and in a, in a way, it almost, uh, as somebody who's culturally Jewish, feel it feels a little bit in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. I agree. It, it feels that anybody who's on the outside is most definitely on the outside. But if you're on the inside, you're most definitely on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, I, I agree. I agree entirely. From at least a perspective as an incredibly Gentile uh, mofo. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it it does feel like something of like, at least from a human perspective, we're not supposed to understand it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least we would need, to, we it, it would be something that we would need to, is that is like, if we wanted to understand this, we would need to speak with like several dwarves and have a dictionary on hand to like, Okay, can you explain this term and what this means for you? And we have to work our way to figure out what this comes from from like a human perspective, and then still we'd probably yeah. get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Rob, just you know, because everything changes, but everything stays the same. Um, if you and Terry were working on this book today, what do you think would be done differently? Ooh, I, I, I. Th- I read Pepe's story with great sensitivity even more now than when we were writing it um, for so many reasons, for so many reasons. Um, I, I think we dealt with it sensitively mm-hmm. um, and, and that, that was the, the, the intention. But we wanted to deal with Pepe uh, incredibly openly and that's why Pepe's definitely wound up a few, de- few more degrees than they needed to be. Um, so that, that was important. So I think, yeah, Pepe's story, we, we would deal with slightly differently, but that's not saying that we got it wrong. I think that we, we, we did our best at the time Mm -hmm. and, and, and Terry is not here to, uh, 
um, to, 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 to answer that. Yeah. But on his behalf, I will say that I think we would get it better. I, I, I'm sure you would. As like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm non-binary myself and like the, and I like Pepe is, I mean, like, it's honestly one of the, it's honestly one of the most like, oh, hey, this is like a character I feel like I resonate with in, in fiction. It's something that like is not me, but like is somebody I would know. And honestly, I like, if there was any, like, you know, there's, there's like tiny things that maybe I've like in the, punctuation like you know like so they could like you know like word choice maybe but like overall it was like overall i'm like not somebody who gets hung up on the things i'm like what's my emotional response to this character Mm -hmm. and overall it was i love this i love pepe and yeah it was very fun and i'm like i would love to see pepe more (laughs) yeah yeah i I think pepe definitely had more stories to, to come out of them further down the line. Um, an important thing about Pepe, uh, when we recorded the multicast uh, adaptation um, yeah. that I believe should still be available or audible right now, uh, a very good friend of mine, Stevie Webb, plays Pepe. And it's very important for me, for you to know, uh, that he also plays Elder McKinley in the Book of Mormon. And I, and I, I love that crossover with, with, with real life, just colliding there on the page, on the audio. There we go. Oh, that's I'll, great. I'll, I'll have that. Elder McKinley meets Pepe. Amazing. <laughs> uh, anything else we want to touch on there? Um, the one, the one thing that I, you know, feel like could have maybe done been done differently. Um, once again, we have a character who's on the heavier side, where there's a lot of running commentary about that with especially with glenda also kind of with the dean um but especially with glenda and you know that's that's been a kind of running complaint for me um it wasn't enough to you know drop me out of the immersion um the way that it was in say masquerade but you know it's something that i think could have been done a little bit differently such a good point. Such a good point, and and absolutely taken on board. You're you're absolutely right. I think that we needed to paint that particular picture of Glenda because we needed the we needed the contrast of again ratcheting up Jules, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, who she was, just so we're we're totally totally aware. But I. Th- I cannot agree with you more that there there would be ways to do that now that would be that would be infinitely better and yeah. I and I it's it, it's not one that I'm 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 quite hanging my head in shame over because I think that 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 the intention the intention was right yeah. but again yeah. the, the delivery could be um yeah it could be taken uh, I'm I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't make me sound like a complete idiot <laughs> um, I, <laughs> that. It, yes, I'm going to just say yes. I agree with you. I agree with you, and that yes, there should be a certain amount of head hanging our head in shame. Um, we, when we when we when we wrote characters, even if the character had no uh, no traits about them, um, the. If I described veterinary to you, the veterinary that we're writing about when we're writing, it could be it's an, it could be an it, an actor, it yeah. could be somebody that we know from the from the village shop or whatever. It just means that when we're writing the attributes around them, we're we're bolting them on. Now, Glenda, I know exactly who Glenda is, was, 
and they they would take everything we wrote about Glenda as as a huge as a huge compliment, and so I, I I'm I was wedded and bolted into that mm-hmm. version of Glenda, but I agree with you that there that there are things that we should have that we should have done differently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, other Discworld references that we we grabbed. Um, first off, is Doctor Irwig or Doctor Awij uh, related to the Lanker Witch? I. Not at all. <laughs> no. Sorry, I would no, not at all. I just, no, yeah, Dr. Ewig, no like relation. Yeah, we got a yeah, we got a couple like no relations. It's just fun thing. Like, yeah. you know, when you have a big enough city, sometimes bloodland knobs. Yeah, uh, and then also the, maybe I'm not enough of a Kevin, which I through the process of this podcast learned is a is a uh, Discworld super fan. I thought that moving pictures, the fallout from that was more sort of like it never, I guess that I might be conflating it with soul music because soul music, it really is sort of like, and that sort of bottled itself off into a pocket universe. But I guess moving pictures, everybody more remembers because Glenda references it. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. think because, because like veterinarian, the truth is like, re- like references <laughs> uh, of like, it right. is a thing of, is this going to, is this built on a magical thing? Is it going to, is this going to create a terrible portal to the hells? Yeah. Like Veterinari remembers it. Like Veterinari at least remembers it. You know, maybe it seems fair enough that most people remember or at least have an idea it happened. I always love seeing Verity push Pram again. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that she's moving up in the world. Good for her. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she deserves it. So yeah, I I do love that Ponder technically controls the university. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and the yes. whole evolution of computing thing is is yeah. also a delight. You know, with the with the higher energy magic building in um in in the other universe. Yeah. That we won't name. And the giant chicken. The giant <laughs> chicken was. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, I mean, that. speaking of things that resonate today, it, it sort of parallels both the early days of qu- computing and then also the current uh, race for quantum computing. Yeah. With all, the, with all the academia bits, Nut's anxiety over worth also felt very much to me like imposter syndrome of <laughs> like you have to, you know, to deserve oh, to be here. He would hate the to- American tenure system. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, publish or perish yeah exactly exactly you have to continually prove your worth and it's not it's not enough to have proved your worth previously you have to constantly be doing it over and over again mm-hmm. um and you know it, we've talked we've talked about the the running thing of like you're know, revisiting terry revisiting ideas or characters or concepts from previous books and expanding upon them i feel like to me, Jules is the evolution of Tawny um, from Thud. And it's so nice to see a character who's you know on the face fairly similar be, you know, fully, fully developed, have um, you know, have a really nice narrative for them, um, and be like nicely well-rounded too. Um mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice example of, you know, pulling something forward. We are not going to talk about association football because that's an entirely different podcast and we are running low on time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but Americans, I don't know, watch Ted Lasso. Uh, yeah. yeah. And British folks, you either know it or you don't care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and feel free to do continue to do either one of those things. But I did look up, and the Megapod Hunt uh, is, I think, and Rob, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, referencing uh, an Oxford College tradition. Of course. A lot of the things that went on at the Unseen University were, the, were Oxford or Cambridge traditions. So, yes, you, you, you don't have to look far to find them. The madder they are, the realer they're going to be, I promise you. Where at Oxford College, once a year, the bursar is serenaded with the Mallard song, and then once a century, there's a parade. <laughs> but if they don't do it, do they, does the cheese board get taken away? <laughs> Of course it does. Um, on <laughs> that note, though, working at two large, uh, very long-standing universities over the past 20 years, weird and oddly specific bequests are one of the things that people who aren't deep in the higher education world simply don't grasp about endowments. Um, when I first started working at Harvard 20 years ago, uh, they were in the middle of a legal battle with um, somebody who had in – well, with – over an endowed chair of cartography uh, because the university wanted to change that to an endowed chair of geography. And the sixth oh. or seventh generation descendant was fighting that. Oh my God. Wow. wow. That's, wow. that's, that's, that's something. <laughs> well, you can imagine just how much money that endowment uh, contract had uh, accrued in 300 years. Yeah. Yes. Uh, anything else we want to, what else do we want to talk about before we wrap up? Well, endowments and things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. the, the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes at universities, you know, that's one thing, but, but areas of, of, what would I say? Pockets of land have actually passed between countries uh, because of the outcome of association football games. And now I'm sure you do not believe me, but <sighs> By all means, go online and have a look at the Bar Green. The Bar being spelled B-A. Um, there's a town on the Scottish borders uh, called Coldstream, and the England-Scotland border runs down the middle of the River Tweed, but outside of, of Coldstream. Um, however, there's uh, a village of uh, called Walk and a village called Cornhill. And the the Scottish border comes south of the river, and it's it encloses a small um, a pocket of land, a small meadow uh, that's about three acres, and uh, which three acres in itself is what's that? That that that's that's bigger than a football pitch, obviously. Um, and that piece of land is known as the Bar Green, and. It is said locally that every year the men of Coldstream play the men of Walk, south of the river, at Bar, and the winning side would claim the Bar Green for their country. Now, as Coldstream grew and got larger, the pop, uh, and the population um, far exceeded that of Walk, uh, the men of Coldstream always won. And so this pocket of land, this weird pocket of about three acres, is now permanently Scottish. And there you are. So it was lost and won during a game of what was, I think it was called the bar game back in then, bar game, bar game, uh, which was basically mob football. And that was it. So it was it was won through not just association football, I should say. It wasn't through won through that. It was won through uh, foot the ball or, as we know it, poor man's fun. So there you go. Yeah, uh, and I was I was trying to remember what this was called, and I, I was poking around in the back, and it, the the original the 
first half of the book game is very reminiscent of uh, Shrovetide football. That's it. There you are. Now we've got the, where, where did the word the shove come from? Exactly there. You've got it. That's right. It. Which was, you can, you can look it up, but it was, uh, it's got a long history. And the whole thing about the, the balls, by the way, with, with those early games, I mean, the balls were, were ba- they were like cannonballs. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you couldn't kick them without breaking a foot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One round world thing that, I mean, it's round world, but also another fantasy universe, but there's there's like a line in there about an entire football team of orcs, and <laughs> there is a board game uh, called Blood Bowl, uh, okay. which is um, <laughs> it was done by the people who make Warhammer, which is it, so it's a weird British board game that is a combination of like mob football and American football, mm-hmm. but with fantasy races as your teams. And it was just like, it, 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 let, it led me to think about that just with the description of injuries of everything in, in the yeah. game. <laughs> so before we do our ratings, Rob, where can people, any, first of all, any closing thoughts? Uh, my closing thoughts are, this has been great fun. Let's do it every week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if you want, sure. I'm happy to. And where can people find you online? Oh, there's only one real place, and that's at Terry and Rob on Twitter. I I, I hide out of the way of everything else. Um, uh, yeah. Um, it doesn't mean I lurk in places. It doesn't mean that I'm not sent things that, that, that would interest me. Um, but I think it's best for my mental health and everybody else's mental health if I just steer the hell out of the way of everything <laughs> and, and do and do what I do best rather than trying to do it um, in a very public way. Says a bloke who's just published a book and has <laughs> been in four documentaries with Terry and all of that. But, you know, they're, they're for Terry. They're for Terry. Me, myself, personally, I would be delighted to meet anybody listening to this in a, in a bar and have a drink with you and... I would rather do that than than have an online presence. Um, but N- Narrativia, the uh, the production company that I run alongside uh, Rihanna, is you know is in full swing. So that's the kind of thing that we do. So you don't have to hunt me down too far. Um, but yes, that's where you find me at Terry and Rob. That's about the only place where I occasionally pop up and post. Well. Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes, the official biography by Rob Wilkins, with help from Terry Pratchett, uh, is available at pretty much every major bookseller. Uh, Feel free to get it from an independent um, or some other place if you don't have an independent nearby. And let's talk about our ratings for the book. Uh, Anna, you want to lead us off? I won't, I won't give my full rating here because in the interest of time, but I will give it all but one of Professor Bango Macarona's uh, many, many titles and honors. But, you know, you'd better say them all anyway when you chant. Justin? I'll give it four out of five missed crucial penalties. I give it one gold-ish cup, one our chancellor's hat, and three um, probably long 40-part cheers. And Rob? Um, I, uh, I, 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 who am I to rate this thing? So therefore, I, 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 there's only one way I can possibly rate it, and that's to give it 11 out of 10. Uh, and now Justin gets to do the closing bit where they read the uh, 
back of the next book. All right. Let me go ahead and... And I guess one of us will have to do this for, sh- for uh, Shepherd's Crown, Anna. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we, can, we can, yeah. Mm. Um, and so our next book, which is book 38, um, is I Shall Wear Midnight. As the Witch of the Chalk, Tiffany Aching performs the distinctly unglamorous work of caring for the needy. But someone, or something, is inciting fear, generating dark thoughts and angry murmurs against witches. Tiffany must find the source of unrest and defeat the evil at its root. Aided by the tiny but tough we free men, Tiffany faces a dire challenge, for if she falls, the whole chalk falls with her. And with that, I think we'll leave you. Have a wonderful day, everybody. here all right and I'm i've got my local backup, going i'm gonna do a backup recording Same. on this guy here we've learned that the one way to guarantee there will be some sort of problem with the audio is to not do a backup recording mm-hmm. if we do one then everything will go perfectly smoothly if we don't do yeah. one mm. yeah. terry believed that he had a superpower that enabled him to stop journalists tape recorders <laughs> as they were back then from spinning so he would ask journalists, is that definitely recording? Yes, it's definitely recording. Are you sure? Yes. And I've got a backup recorder and that's recording as well. Two days later, Terry, <laughs> you got a recording that I didn't make of our, of our chat. So there we go. It has happened. It has happened. It just has happened. It happened many times. So there we go. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.